We all know there's a housing crisis and affordability crisis in our country. And the investors that are able to help the government solve that crisis are going to be extraordinarily successful. Mobile home parks seem like a great solution to this crisis, but it's not as perfect of a fit as you might think. In this episode, I talk with Ryan Smith. Now, Ryan co-manages one of the largest self-storage and mobile home park portfolios in the country. He walks us through his business, the past and present of the mobile home market, talks about what external drivers are impacting mobile home park prices and returns, and the most important thing mobile home investors should do to build their portfolio. All of that after our brief intro. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors, welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I'm talking with Ryan Smith. Now, Ryan co-manages multiple investment funds, which specialize in directly and indirectly investing in mobile home parks and self-storage assets with currently over 20,000 units located across 25 states. Ryan, we're excited to have you here and thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Good to see you. So tell us you know, about your background and your investment history. I'll treat topic for you. I've been doing this for a long time and haven't stopped. Grew up in a real estate family. My dad was dirt floor poor, was a roofer, realized that people who owned the roofs were the ones that made the money, not the people standing on the roof. So he jumped off the roof and started buying roofs. So growing up, it was a very blue collar. Every weekend we were at a different property. I was scraping, trenching, doing all the things he didn't want to do was my job, as is the job of any kid. I would replace wax rings on toilets. And so anyways, grew up in real estate. I was very analytical learned to code at eight years old, fascinated by computers, self-taught myself 13 languages, Orland C, object-oriented C, ANSI C, Pascal, Fortran, COBOL, .NET, VB and C, C Sharp, SQL, XML, the whole deal. Loved to code, ended up doing my dad's underwriting for his real estate business. Started to realize that he needed a tool that he could use to better financial model his investment. So three months, one summer, in it was late middle school, early high school, and coded him an application that allowed him to sit down at his computer and financially evaluate and model his investments for real estate transactions and back end to purchase scenarios, starting with the end in mind. And he loved it. It worked. He was surprised. I was surprised. We were all surprised. <laughs> and that he told a friend who told a friend, and I ended up having about 140,000 users of my software globally, ended up licensing that to Donald Trump's company many years later. And there was a whole story there. Got drafted professionally by the Baltimore Orioles, played baseball all the way through college, and basically decided to pursue brains instead of brawn. So in short, out of college, I thankfully had money for my software company. I had knowledge of real estate. I had the competitive itch of sports. And you say, that's all great. But what I was missing was the true dynamite, and that's my wife. So she and I came together and we started buying single family houses. We bought almost 30 houses in our early 20s. I think she was 20 and I was like 22, 23. So we started buying residential real estate. It's what our family did. And we came to a quick realization that it wasn't scalable. So then we started looking for things that were more scalable, landed on mobile home parks and self-storage facilities. And then we started buying those and 
have been doing that for now almost 17, 18 years. And so I fast forwarded to the end for fear of <laughs> me approaching incrementally each one of those years in between. So yeah, we started mobile home park storage facilities. We've done a ton of them since then. And now we own in more than 30 states. Wow, that's incredible. So anything but the conventional route of going to a W-2 job and then figuring out that you want to have some passive income. So you were really in a lot of fields. So you went straight from single family to mobile homes and self-storage. Was there something specific? Because the natural progression for most people tends to be, okay, apartments, because they understand homes. They understand that people must live somewhere. Was there a certain draw that brought you specifically to self-storage or mobile homes versus apartments, which just kind of seems like what most people go into first? I would say there's a qualitative draw that turned into a quantitative draw. The qualitative draw was just thinking more in words. We were looking for four things. We wanted cash flow. We wanted capital appreciation. We wanted tax benefits. And then we wanted this thing called cycle resiliency or non-correlation, low beta, thousand ways to say the same thing. In short, if none of those ring a bell to your listeners, what we wanted is we wanted off the roller coaster ride. So we did research and we found that it was our view that mobile home parks and self-storage would do the best in that regard. It's turned out that that was correct. Now, from a quantitative standpoint, I'm only going to, I guess, tiptoe through this, but I think there may be follow-on questions here. So the fundamental basis, no matter what it is you invest in, storage, mobile home parks, billboards, apartments, it really doesn't matter. It all evolves and revolves around the concept of knowing what the value of a dollar is. So a dollar of NOI at a 10% cap is $10 per month. So if you have a dollar a month, 12 months a year, a 10 cap is $120. A five cap is $240. Right. So understanding cap rates and how that plays, but not even going into the cap rate side of the discussion, we wanted to invest into a business that produced NOI and gave us a really good chance at consistently growing the NOI over time. Because in my business, every dollar I find a month is $240 in my pocket. So I'm looking for $240 dollars. Okay. Then the question is, okay, well, if every dollar we all find is worth $240, how many of those dollars do you want to find? And how predictable do you want the finding of those dollars to be? Well, the answer from any rational person would be, I want a lot and I want it consistently. <laughs> all of them. Um, exactly. The JG Wentworth commercial all over again. <laughs> but when you look back over the last 20 years, the two most predictable asset classes, both predictable and best performing for net operating income growth is number one, manufactured housing, and number two, self-storage. Third is apartments, is multifamily. So multifamily is definitely not last, but it's not first. So for me, if I understand the value of the dollar, I want to fish in the pond that produces the most of those dollars, and that's storage and mobile home parks, followed by multifamily. And then we wanted to focus and specialize. So we picked two rather than five. What do you attribute to self-storage and mobile home parks being that number one spot and performing most consistently and best? You know, is it the affordability? Is the affordable housing sort of crisis in some parts of the country attributing to that? What do you feel is pushing those consistently to be the top performers within this space? Manufactured housing is actually really easy. I think much easier to address than possibly storage. Manufactured housing is more on a supply side answer. And self-storage is more of a demand side answer. But on manufactured housing, it's really simple. There's about 55,000 mobile home parks in the US. In any given year, there's about 10 that are built and 150 that are torn down and redeveloped for highest and best use because the highest and best use for any piece of land is typically not a mobile home park. 
And so there's a built-in incentive to get rid of it. And at the same time, almost because of the same thing, there's not an inclination to allow new ones to be built because they're terrible for the purpose of generating tax revenue. An apartment complex is much better for tax revenue than a mobile home park. Then you have all the soft side, you have the constituents of a market not wanting a mobile home park near them for perception right. of drugs and crime, which is largely unfair. But anyway, so on the mobile home park space, you have demand has been for 20 years growing by leaps and bounds. And I will say, unfortunately, it is growing, really no end in sight, and supply is constrained by a number of barriers. And so it's a heavily moated space. And so when you have increasing demand, you have constrained supply, price naturally goes up. And then lastly, and this is an interesting comment, but the average NOI growth rate for the last 20 years is roughly 4.3% per year for 20 years. So the question is, well, why is it so consistent? And what I actually believe is the case is I believe with manufactured housing, if you could charge any rate that the market would pay and not worry about landing on the front cover of a newspaper for charging it, the rates would jump much higher than they currently are. So to a degree, manufactured housing is dancing a step behind the beat. Although you're behind the market, you gain the benefit of more consistency and you're consistent because you're so far behind. And so that's kind of the way the industry has worked. So it's produced a really consistent growth trend over now more than 20 years. Storage is more demand side considerations. I want to touch on something you said there about the incentive to really have more, right? There's a lot of incentive from a lot of parties, including the government, to build more apartment buildings. But you mentioned there's not that incentive for the mobile home space. And that incentive that the government wants more apartments because of the tax revenue also trickles down to great tax benefits for investors specifically within that space. So when doing mobile home parks without that sort of incentive, what are the taxes like as an investor? Are there tax benefits? Are they as good as in other incentivized areas? Tell us about that. I'll start by saying I'm certainly not a tax advisor or expert, but I will say we do cost segregation. So we cost seg our storage facilities and mobile home parks and mobile home parks have pretty significant amounts of tax benefits as well. And would I think surprise some people because some people will look at a mobile home park and say, well, there's a big component of land and you can't depreciate land and no debate on that statement. Certainly true. But there's a lot of things that may not be as commonly thought of. But we do cost said there are pretty significant tax benefits across both asset classes. Now, as compared to others, I wouldn't be the perfect person to ask that. But I generally try to invest in my own projects at least once a year, if nothing else, the tax benefits I get from myself. I'm actually doing that right now. I've got an investment I'm going to make likely here in the next couple of weeks for the same purpose. Absolutely. So it sounds like when you talk about investing in mobile home parks, you also own the units themselves and not just the land like some people do, or how do you structure your investment? We just want to own the land. We don't want to own the homes. Although from a philosophical standpoint, we don't want to own any of the homes. Practically, we do from time to time own homes. We have a mobile home park in Washington, D.C. Metro. It's 266 spaces. When we bought it two years ago, it was 255, I believe, that were occupied. And then there was about 11 vacant pads. So we bring in the homes, we set them up, and then we sell them away. And at present, there's one vacancy. So we're now 265 out of 266. So maybe two years from now, when we talk again, it'll be in that park specifically, we will not have any homes, but today we do. So I guess as it pertains to taxes, let's say you buy a mobile home park for a million dollars, and this is a very rough and general statement. Let's just say 30% is land, 
which you can't write off. 35% might be land improvements, which you can depreciate, I think, 15 years on a straight line method. And then at that point, you have 30 and 35%. You have 65% of your allocated cost. You bought it for a million. You're now at 65%. If all the land and land improvements have been considered, what's the balance? The balance would be goodwill. It's the catch-all category, so to speak. And so I believe goodwill, you can straight line right off over 15 years the same. So in that scenario, you have about 70% or so that you could straight line potentially over 15 years. A lot of similarities to a little bit of a difference, but definitely some of those tax benefits, which we have heard kind of if you just own the land, like you had mentioned before, you can't depreciate certain things. So what's a common play for those mobile home parks? Because in multifamily, of course, we have the typical, hey, value add, we want to buy in a class B area, class C property, fix it up and then sell it off between maybe three and seven years. Are we seeing mobile home parks being more of that long-term cash flow play? Or is there a lot of value add or a lot of investors or operators like you selling them off after just a couple of years? Or what's kind of the typical play when it comes to mobile home parks? I would say there's no play by virtue of the asset class. It's more the operator and how they see the world and on a risk-adjusted basis, the plan they're effectuating, and then whether or not there's a sync up with the investor as to whether or not the investor is looking for a similar plan of execution. So we have a very specific plan that we're abiding by, and it's actually really super simple, and we've been doing it for a very long time. And so in short, we have a fundamental belief that you only sell the things that are terrible and you keep the things that are good. Keep the good until if and when it becomes bad, then you sell it, pare down your risk. So kind of our model is simple. We want to buy quality. We want to buy really good location, really quality product. We want to invest in the property over time and make it better, create value at the asset by driving NOI growth over time. Then the goal is to make distributions on a monthly basis of cash flow, tax benefits, all of that. But we want to refinance the assets generally every five years, return capital, but hold the assets for a very, very long time. So the goal is to return capital, get to a zero investment basis, and then let it ride and give investors the opportunity to hold assets for a very long time. Most people are not geared for the long term. They want to be, but they're not because they have bumps in the road and they have black swans in their life. And it's terrible. There's a lot of reasons to not stay the course. And so the point is we want to create liquidity options over time so that people could potentially get out if they want out, but not be obligated to get out should they not want out. So anyway, point being is we're not a buy, fix and sell, pump and dump kind of shop. And I also think my crystal ball broke a long time ago, but what has been the case in the last five years will not likely be the case in the next five years. So there's a lot of models that are quick turn that may not wind up being quick turn. But if the whole model is geared to quick turn and you can't quick turn it, now you may have problems. If you're planning to hold it for a long time, you could always sell quicker. I want to touch base on something that you had mentioned before about the scarcity of mobile home parks and reasons they're being not built anymore. There's reasons why they're actually being sold off. Do you foresee that lack of additional inventory impacting the business, making it more challenging for newer investors to get into the space? Or how is that going to affect the long-term investability? And let's say 20, 30 years down the road of mobile home parks with all of the obstacles that you had mentioned with supply and then also the demand continuing to drive up? There's other considerations too, and that's the institutionalization of the space, which is 10 years ago, none of the big dogs were in the space. And now the Carlisle Group, TPG, they're all in the space or have been in the space. So there's a lot of institutional capital flowing. What that'll do 
is the obvious. It'll drive an increase in price, and it has. I mean, I've purchased properties dating back almost 17 years ago in the 15 to 20 cap rate range, sometimes higher than 20 cap rate. A lot of the properties we bought maybe 10 years ago for 10 to 15 cap, we could probably sell today for five or six. The point is they're available to be bought. The question is, do you want to pay the price? And there's a lot of newer investors that are reading things that were written five and 10 years ago. And they're saying, well, I'll just wait for the 10 caps to come back. They may not anytime soon. The cat's kind of out of the bag for mobile home park. So I think what it'll come down to is lower return expectations to a degree outside of special situations. I think it'll be lower return expectations for most investors. And the newer investors that are smaller, if they're trying to do it themselves, they're probably going to have to take quite a bit of risk to get in the space. They're going to have to pay a premium to buy low quality. Because interestingly enough, with the crowdfunding kind of aspect, most of the folks that are just throwing up a shingle in the last five years, they're getting into the space. But what they're doing is they're buying lower quality properties in the middle of Uncle John's cornfield and counting cash flow distributions. But in my words, they're taking a lot of risk in the long run for what they're buying, where they're buying. And the whole model is, well, we're going to sell it before that risk avails itself. Point is, a smaller guy will probably have to scrap pretty hard, may have to pay a little bit more and take a little bit more risk that they're accustomed to, to do it themselves. There's some barriers that are growing. Absolutely. And you had mentioned being across many staging between 25 and 30 now or so. And are you essentially forced to look nationwide? Like when you had mentioned, hey, some companies want to go out there and put a billion into mobile home parks. Well, if you want to do a billion in multifamily, you could go to any big city and stay in that city, drop a billion pretty easy. Are the newer investors or even the seasoned investors for mobile home parks forced just because of inventory to look really across the whole country? For me, we're not forced to do anything. We want to do what we think is best. We like the diversification of buying in different markets within a pooled vehicle so that you don't have too much exposure to one geographic location or asset class. We form vehicles and pool at many assets across both storage and mobile home parks across geographies. We like it for that reason. I mean, you could spend a pretty penny on just mobile home parks in Orlando. Certainly you could. May not even be a bad strategy. So we own in Mesa, we own in the Washington DC Metro, Denver, and all over the place. So we like to kind of spread it around from a geographic standpoint. Somebody could start in a geography and hunker down there if they wanted to, or they could build a wider platform. And that's kind of what we've decided to do. For that newer investor, that newer operator working in this space, they're looking at deals, they're analyzing deals and underwriting deals. What are some common underwriting mistakes that you see some newer investors in this space make? And I think this is more of a psychological, mental, emotional one is just being overly optimistic. It's hard being an entrepreneur. You have to see opportunity and you have to be hopeful and optimistic. And I'm an optimist, but what is typically lacking is the pushback. Where's the resistance in your modeling? So a lot of times, even a lot of the models that I see out floating in the marketplace today, they're pretty optimistic, but being billed as conservative. One of the bigger risks is just being a little bit too optimistic in your numbers. We all know why that would be, is if you were more conservative, if you thought a lower return outcome was possible, you'd be less enthusiastic. I would encourage investors, and I told you this before, I think we went on here, I meet monthly with several large operators in various spaces. The way I view my role in their life is to provide pushback, thoughtful pushback. And so I would seek out knowledgeable and competent advice that would provide thoughtful pushback in terms of your assumptions. That's a mistake I see a lot of people making is they just don't have that. 
as is the case in most of life, you don't have it because you don't look for it. You have not because you ask not kind of thing. It's a fine line, right? Like you said, we see the upside, but then you also have to acknowledge, hey, what if it just doesn't go that way? So that fine line that newer operators have to walk of, hey, how can we get competitive and get a good deal and maybe don't miss out on these great deals because we can't look at all of the downside and take all of the conservative measures, but which levers do we want to push to get competitive, to get great deals, but also that we can put ourselves in a position to outperform what we're looking at. And of course, not risk investors' money. Uh, So that's fantastic. So Ryan, I have a question I really want to ask you, and I know you're going to give me pushback because this isn't your personality, but to some people out there, they are in this space and want your advice. So a lot of investors start out in their investing business, whatever niche they pick, doing it part-time, typically while they work a regular W-2 job, which I know you also don't have experience with. So if you were to start this investment journey today and you wanted to really build that portfolio, but you were only part-time and you could only commit one hour a day and $500 a month to building your portfolio, how would you spend that time and that money? I mean, to me, it would be direct on what matters most. And what I mean by that is I notice a lot of people when they start a new enterprise, they spend all their time on the periphery and not on the core. To me, there's no need for periphery if you don't have core. So to me, it would be picking up a phone and dialing and talking to potential sellers. And I would start right away in placing phone calls, building relationships and generating deal flow. And from deal flow, everything else will then follow. Your needs will avail themselves and then go solve for X and go find what you need kind of thing. But don't try to necessarily predict unnecessarily the needs that you don't know you have. On the $500 a month, I wouldn't even address that because to me, if you said it was $5,000 or $50,000, no amount of money will ever be enough. When you learn how to start with nothing, nothing is all you'll ever need. And if you have to use something to get something, then your business is contingent on a something. I'd rather my business be contingent on a nothing. The $500, that's insignificant, I think, in my consideration. Zero or more, fine, but zero is fine. What are some of those peripheral tasks you see? So the core task, it sounds like is deal flow for this business. What are some of the things that you see newer investors start out doing? I mean, we see with multifamily all the time, they spend a ton of time on their website or they're picking their brand colors or something like that. What are some of those peripherals that you kind of see as a not an effective spend of time, especially in that beginning stage? Yeah. So everything you just mentioned is not necessary. That's majoring in minor things, so to speak. So to me, I guess some of the peripheral will be lending. So if you find a deal and you get an interested seller, you may be able to negotiate a large seller financing component. So your lending is almost solved for You might need equity. So starting to build relationships with lenders and equity partners, start creating somewhat of a management plan, have some kind of underwriting model that you can reasonably estimate those things. And then everything's following on. So if you get a deal and you got a live one, now you start reeling. So it's like, Do you line up your financing? You line up your capital, create an LLC for your management company if you don't have one. But everything's flowing now out of the need for what is coming rather than predicting everything you'll need, creating it in the hopes that it will come. This is probably unintentionally punitive. But I think at least in a lot of the people I know, even people I deeply care about, I think they're so worried about getting a yes on the other end of the phone that they spend their time where the yeses will never show up, almost as an aversion to the yes. Because if you get a yes and the seller says, yes, I'll sell to you. Now, the irony is the fear really then begins, which I find fascinating because the physiological effect of fear and excitement are actually the same. 
that cannot be distinguished. But most people are so consistently convinced they're scared that when they have a similar feeling, they call it fear when I believe they're quite excited. They just don't know the difference. So I would focus my time on the top yes that will then generate follow-on activity in response to that yes. That would be where I would spend my time. And that's where I've always spent my time. I've always focused on the only thing that mattered and then everything else we'll solve for. That's fantastic. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. We loved having you on. Listeners, if you haven't already, head down to the show note and download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Now, Ryan, for the listeners out there, what's the best way to get in touch with you? If you want to give me a ring, my phone here is 407-602-7662 and our website's elevationfund.com. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. And if you need Ryan, we'll put that information in the show notes as well. And thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.